Leona and I, when we first hung out with each other, we decided that we would meet at my apartment. I I called her one day after church, and I said, hey, uh, let's hang out. And she's like, okay. And she's like, where where do you want to meet? It's like, well, let's meet at my apartment, then we could just take one car, and we were going to go hang out at uh, Uptown at that time. And she came over, and I was in the middle of cleaning, like getting the apartment ready, because I was bacheloring it up with me and a friend. And as bachelors, we have a certain quality of cleanliness that's okay with us that is probably not okay for the majority of society and maybe third world countries. Uh, But so anyways, I was busily cleaning things up with my hazmat suit on and uh, little did I know the simple act of trying to make sure that the bathroom was clean so she didn't throw up in her mouth if she had to use it. Um, Little did I know that her coming to my door and me being in the middle of cleaning my bathroom would lead her to believe that I was a neat freak. She would tell me later, she goes, I'm so mad at you. I got, we were married for probably six months. She goes, I'm so mad. She's like, why? She goes, you tricked me. I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, you're leaving your stuff all over the bathroom. I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, it's my bathroom. She's like, but when I met you, you were clean and you were cleaning. And I thought, I thought I got myself my brother-in-law. So anyways, her brother-in-law is super clean anyways. which That was weird for her to say. But to this day, she doesn't let that impression down. She reminds me all the time, and now my kids know it. And wherever I leave a mess somewhere, she always goes back and says, You know, if you only didn't deceive me. <sighs> I wouldn't be so upset with you, right? I can only hope that as we talk today about this subject of unmet expectations and the role that it plays in wrestling with doubt regarding faith in Jesus, it could be as simple as dealing with the disappointment of not having as clean of a husband as you thought you would have had. Um, The sad truth is that if we were to dump all the disappointments that each and every one of us is carrying, if, if we were to all of us that didn't take some time for each and every one of us to share all the disappointments that we've had in our lives, we would probably have a really long, heartbreaking list of things that didn't go the way we thought. The parent that never really saw us for who we were, maybe the adult that took advantage of their power in your adolescence, Maybe it's the friends that you thought would never leave you. Maybe it's singleness that has gone on far too long than you thought it would. A marriage that once started in idyllic happiness now has become a nightmare. A career maybe that pays the bills but kills the soul. Maybe it's a pastor who let you down. Maybe it's me. It's the unexpected diagnosis that leads to an unwelcome alteration of future hopes and dreams. It's the children, or maybe the absence of children, that you once thought would be a source of joy, but now the thought of them has now become a source of pain. We have all experienced this, right? Unmet expectations, disappointments. And you don't have to live life long enough to know that we'll all experience it again and again and again. 
But it's not just us who experience disappointment like this. Now, I don't know if this is good news, but it is news nonetheless. And I think it's something that you could build your life on. We're not the only ones who feel disappointment like this. In fact, it was the people who were closest to Jesus, who walked and talked with him, who ate meals with him. Those who, in times of laughter and friendship, exchanged high fives. I don't even know if that was something they did culturally. (laughs) Just I'm guessing, imposing my my Western customs on that. Whatever they had done. those people would get precisely what it feels like to be disappointed, to have their expectations not met. In fact, Jesus was their most significant. It could be argued that Jesus was, for these people, probably the most significant source of disappointment. Matthew chapter 11 tells us about one of Jesus' cousins, actually. A guy by the name we call John the Baptist now. And his story reads like this. Verse 1. When Jesus had finished giving instruction to the twelve disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Now, when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples. Pause real quick. So John the Baptist is in jail. He's in prison. If you know anything about John the Baptist, he was the one who was supposed to prepare the way of the Lord. And we just need to pause, recognize. He can't go too quickly over this fact that John was in prison. Okay? And he hears that Jesus is beginning this ministry. He's sending the 12 out now. Word is going out. Disciples are going, people are getting healed, the gospel is being preached, but he's in jail. So John told these people, his disciples, to ask him, verse 3, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. I think one of the things that we have to understand when it comes to doubt in the life of faith is that doubt is a normal response to unmet expectations. It's normal. I don't think anyone should feel ashamed that in the face of unmet expectations, they begin to doubt the things that they were sure of. One theologian and commentator makes this note of this passage we just read. Someone who's way smarter than me understands the Greek, all the historical context. And here's what this person, with all the knowledge that he possesses, understands about what we just read. I think it's just helpful to to take a look at. 
is what he says. The question at first glance seems so out of character for what we know of the Baptist. He calls him the Baptist. So much that some have suggested that John asked it not for his own sake, but for the sake of his followers. So he's making the, uh, uh, the allusion to the fact that John really wasn't asking for his sake. He knew Jesus was the Christ. But his, his, his own disciples were doubting, so he sent them just kind of like you would tell, you know, a kid would come ask me, like, Dad, can I eat a tub of ice cream for dinner? And I'm like, go ask your mom. I know what the answer is. They know what the answer is, but I'm just like, you know what? Go ask your mom. Because your mom will say what? Yes. Oh, wait, no, no, <laughs> no. So this is what they thought. And he goes on to say this. This is really important. Check this out. Not a shred of exegetical evidence supports this view. You don't know what exegetical means? Just, he's basically saying there isn't a shred of evidence of this from the scriptures. Not only may the Baptist have become demoralized, but the Baptist had preached in terms of imminent, immediate, or whatever you want to say, blessing and judgment. By contrast, Jesus was preaching in veiled fulfillment terms and bringing much blessing, but no real judgment. And as a result, the Baptist was having second thoughts. He was doubting. Let me ask you this question real quick. Is it? You don't have to answer out loud. It's just, what do you call it when I tell you to ask it yourself? Is that rhetorical? Correct, rhetorical. Is it possible to live a life without unmet expectations? Is it possible to live your whole life and to never have an expectation unmet? Now, before I try to answer this question and its relevancy, let me take a second to address the person who lives by the, because there's always one, there's one everywhere. Well, you know, I don't live by expectations. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't have any expectations in anything, you know. So, I, you know, I can't be disappointed by anything if I don't have no expectations, right? Uh, that, that kind of mantra. I get it. Some people carry with them a, I have a zero expectation thing, so nothing can disappoint me mentality. And I can understand that rationale, and, and I can even believe that. I can even believe that. That kind of thinking could be optimistic. You know, oh, don't have, don't have any expectations, right? You know, don't have any expectations. Just take things as they are. I get that. Um, and in many ways, I think my personality lends itself to that kind of cognitive trait, which leads to inner confidence, gratitude, and empathy, as one psychologist would like to say regarding this mentality of inner uh, confidence and zero expectations. But you know, the, uh, really, at best, that kind of thinking is akuna matata. You know what I mean? Akuna matata. Now, I might get in trouble because Disney is trying to <laughs> trademark a phrase in another language. Okay, whatever. Uh, akuna matata means what? No worries, right? That idea of like, ah, oh, you know, no worries. And like I said, to be honest, my personal wiring leads me to live my life with this kind of attitude. In fact, uh, uh, a story that... A kid, he's not a kid anymore, he's an adult. I think he's almost 30 now, but when he was a teenager, uh, I, I was his youth leader, 
and I used to lead worship at that youth group, and it was this actually guitar, and he, he tells me, he goes, I, I, re- I remember the, one of the stories I can't get out of my mind is that day your guitar fell off the music stand and face-planted right into the hardwood, hard, the hard floor, and, and you turned around and you looked at it and you shrugged and you went, ah, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And he goes, I just couldn't believe that you would, you would just say that. And, and that is really kind of, for the most part, that's, that's kind of how I roll. That's just my personality. So I get the whole, I say all that because I, I can get the whole, you know, I just, we just don't carry, I don't have any expectations. And then I don't get disappointed. I live that life, kind of. But the truth is this, no amount of mental gymnastics, because that's what it is, regarding how you handle expectations, no amount of that can prepare you for when the circumstances of your life devastate you. You might want to say, well, it wasn't that I had unmet expectations, just something bad happened to me. Well, that means you thought something good was due to you. We all face unmet expectations. And in the face of unmet expectations, it is normal to doubt. Here's the thing. When you realize that life has taken you on a journey that you didn't want to go on, you can begin to doubt. And when doubt settles in, here's the thing. Doubt can feel like an assault on your identity. It can feel like an assault on your identity. I don't know how many of you have uh, are, are Marvel fans. Uh, my son and I have this kind of tradition. Every Friday, there's a show called The Falcon and the Winter Soldier comes out. And if you don't know it, forgive me. Uh, just pretend I'm giving like a sports illustrations. Pastors like to give football illustrations. I give Marvel movie illustrations because that's what I like. But Brendan and I have this new tradition of watching a TV show called The Falcon and Winter Soldier. And if you're not a fan, uh, like I said, I don't hold it against you. But I mention this because there's this dialogue between... A guy named Sam, who is the Falcon, and a guy named Bucky, the once best friend of Captain America, also known as the Winter Soldier, who was the evil super assassin. What was his name as the super assassin? Oh, the Winter Soldier. Oh, that was his evil name. Okay, okay. I'm not paying attention. Um, But anyways, there's this conversation between these two guys, and... um, you know, the, the Winter Soldier, he was, he was best friends with Steve Rogers, who was, anybody know? Captain America, right? Captain America. And so uh, the conversation goes like this. Bucky gets up into Sam's face. Uh, Sam had given the shield away that Captain America gave him to tell him that, you know, basically, like, you take up the mantle. You're going to be, you know, America's new hero. But Sam gives it away. You have to watch the thing to figure out what it is. But he, here's the important part. Here's what he says. He goes, Sam, why did you give up that shield? Steve believed in you. He trusted you. He gave you that shield for a reason. That shield, that is, that is everything he stood for. That is his legacy. He gave you that shield and you threw it away like it was nothing. And so maybe he was wrong about you. And if he was wrong about you, then he was wrong about me. John was a preparer of the way. He was supposed to be the one to prepare the way of the coming Messiah who would rescue the people of God. What an honor. All of his life he's been told this. The problem is his expectation of what 
the way was supposed to look like ended up unfolding in a way that he had not envisioned. So, sitting in a prison, I'm the preparer of the way, I'm the preparer of the way, I'm the preparer of the way, how can I prepare any way when I'm in prison? This is not what it looks like to be the preparer of the way. Maybe, maybe I'll send my disciples to Jesus and he'll break me out of prison. He's the preparer of the way. So sitting in a prison environment was the complete opposite of living in the wilderness of Judea where he was previous to being in prison. And John was probably wondering if I was wrong about how Jesus was going to be received by the majority of the Israelites as the coming Messiah because he was. Then maybe I was wrong about who I thought I was. Maybe I wasn't, after all, the preparer of the way. When your identity is being assaulted, it is a natural response to take defense, right? Someone questions your integrity, you're just going to let them, yeah, you know, yeah, I, I am pretty lame. No, no, you're not going to be like, no, no, you're lame. When your, your identity is being assaulted, it's a natural response to put up walls. Because whatever you believe to be the source of your pain ultimately becomes what? Your enemy. The source of that pain. You have to. And while some may look down on John for having questioned whether or not Jesus really was the Messiah, I think it's worth noting that John responded to his doubt in the way that we all should respond to our doubt. Instead of openly denying Jesus and having his disciples spread accusation against Jesus, instead of ruminating in his prison cell about, oh, I see how it was. I get to do all this stuff, prepare the way, and Jesus is out there free with his disciples, and I'm here stuck in here in jail. We're family after all. Why doesn't he come get me? Instead of doing that, he decided to do what? Send his disciples, to ask Jesus a question. In the face of unmet expectations, instead of holding his life situation against Jesus, he approached Jesus with his doubt. Now, the cool thing to look at is how did Jesus, how did Jesus respond to that doubt, right? He did not shame. <laughs> he did not call John out for his lack of faith. Oh my goodness. Jesus is such a better parent than me. He did not begin to question John's integrity. In fact, a few verses later, look at this, Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, he says this. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John the Baptist. <laughs> Jesus, the dude, the dude has told all of his, he's basically told all of his disciples he doubts that you are who he says he was. And you're going to do what? You're going to give him like the greatest compliment in the world? 
Oh, I get it. Art of war. Yeah, yeah. Keep your friends close. Enemies closer. I get it. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, Jesus, I see what you're doing. Look at verse 14, though. He says this. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Oh, oh, you're double downing Jesus. You're saying that he's not only great, but he is everything that we believed him to be sent by God. So what does this interaction between John the Baptist and Jesus have to tell us about, first of all, those of us who follow Jesus, how we are to handle our doubts in the face of unmet expectations. And if you're leaning into Jesus, you need to know two things. Here's, here's the two things. I have just two thoughts, two thoughts. One is this. <clears throat> Jesus is not threatened by your doubts. Jesus is not threatened by your doubts. He's not threatened by your doubts. Two, your doubt in Jesus do not change his perspective of you. Your doubts in Jesus does not change his perspective of you. It does for normal human beings, right? If, if, if doubts me, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, you don't trust me. You don't trust me. Oh, that's how it was now. I thought we were friends. I thought you could, we could trust, right? That's how it works in the normal world. But for Jesus, this is why he's the prince of peace, the bright and morning star. He is the good news. Our doubts do not change his perspective of us. So when I say that Jesus, one, is not threatened by our doubts, what I mean is that even though doubt in him is not his ideal, let me just say that, it's not his ideal. Does Jesus want you to doubt? No! <laughs> That's partly why he died on a cross. But even though it's not his ideal, he knows it's going to happen. The constant theme throughout all of Scripture is that God works with people who have doubt. God works with people who have doubt. In fact, over and over again, we find that God is what? Patient. <laughs> and he's powerful enough to navigate life with us despite, in spite of our doubts. That is good news, my friends. In fact, the most faith-filled thing we can do is to tell God all of our doubts, to allow God to become part of the process of our believing, even if it starts with doubting. Jesus is not threatened when we are honest about everything we don't understand or struggle to believe. He's not like your fundamental Christian friend who says that if you don't know whether or not you're post-trip, P-trip, amillennialism or whatever, then you really don't have a faith in Jesus because if you don't have a right understanding of that, then do you even know the right Jesus? Okay, that's not, that's not who Jesus is. Jesus actually gets it. <laughs> I mean, just read the Gospels. His whole life. <laughs> Jesus had people who didn't believe he was who he said he was. I was reading one of the Gospels and it says, his family did not believe he was who he said he was. His brothers and sisters. Jesus gets it. And you know what Jesus did? In spite of all that doubt? 
Do you know what he did? He died for us. Willingly walked into his oppressor's hands. Second, when I say your doubts in Jesus do not change his perspective of you, what I mean is that your, your identity is not dependent on you. 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 Someone is probably going to quote me on that and see, look at this intolerant pastor saying these things that are not popular today. But your identity is not dependent on you. Your identity is not dependent on you. It's actually dependent on who God is. Before you blow me off, just listen. God knew that John would doubt that Jesus was who he said he was. Yet God saw it fit for him to be referred to as great. It would be recorded in the annals of something we call the Bible that people thousands of years would read. This doubter would be forever memorialized as having been said, defined by Jesus himself as the greatest. And he wasn't defined as great because of his merit. He was defined as great because it was God's plan that he would be the preparer of the way. Now, John was great. He was pretty great. But it wasn't because of how he lived up to a set of expectations. John was great because God, sovereign creator of the universe, had already decided the kind of masterpiece he wanted to create in the life we would refer to as John the Baptist. And John's doubts could not, would not change that. How do I know that? Scripture tells us in Ephesians, God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so none of us can boast. We are, for we are what? God's mass. We are whose? God's masterpiece. Well, I, I had something to do with it. Okay, sure. That's what you want to think. Either you are or you're not. Are you God's masterpiece? Do you believe that? Are you God's masterpiece? To the extent that you believe that you deserve the right to be part of the artistry of what is that masterpiece actually could be a direct correlation to the amount of submission you have actually placed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Just put it out there. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that he has planned for us long ago. If you are a follower of Jesus, this means that you are not your masterpiece. I am not my own masterpiece. I am not a collection of my accolades, the books I've read, the accomplishments I've done. The, 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 what, what, I am not that. You are not that. We are God's masterpiece. Your life is God's project. He thought you up. He knows you. He knows the you that he intended you to be. And this, good, and this really is good news because this means that when God looks at our life, he doesn't see us as we are. He sees 
who he is transforming us into. He sees the final product. He sees the masterpiece. He's accomplishing in us. We are Jesus' happy little trees. (laughs) Our doubts are not a hindrance, but are part of God's grand vision of making sure our lives communicate and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus with clarity. As Romans 8.28 says this, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them, for God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Nearly every person who was recorded to have followed Jesus in the scriptures has doubted, has, a, has had doubt as a part of their journey. Some even struggled with doubts after, catch this, some even struggled with doubts after having seen Jesus alive and risen. Matthew actually tells us in Matthew 28, it says this, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them when they saw him. They worshipped, but some, guess what, doubted. That just blows my mind. Here he is. He's right in front of you. Yeah. I mean, he looks like Jesus. But I don't know. Is he? I mean, I don't know. If I was a follower of Jesus who was trying to write an account of the life of Jesus so that others could believe in Jesus, (laughs) I'm not sure. I would have included that, (laughs) the fact that one of the 11, some of the 11 disciples who saw Jesus worshiped him and then some doubted. Like that, I I mean, have you ever thought about that? Like, like why would Matthew write that? That That's not not helpful. Like you're trying to convince people that Jesus is Lord. Like this is not helpful. Why would you include that? I'm not sure that I would have done that. But Matthew wasn't concerned about creating an apologetic He was trying to communicate the kind of person Jesus was in the realities of this life. Matthew wasn't threatened. He didn't believe that the gospel was threatened by the idea that that some of the original 11 would have doubted Jesus. In fact, he saw it that it was was paramount to to the idea that the gospel is good news. And what kind of person was Jesus? What was the kind of person that, that, that faced our doubt? Well, here's what the following verses say. In Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came near. <laughs> I love that. Matthew goes, some doubted. And the next thing he says is this, Jesus came, what? Near. I wonder how many of us, it would change our perspective. If in the middle of our doubt and the shame that follows the doubt and the guilt that follows the doubt and the anger that follows the doubt or the, this and that, I wonder if we, I wonder how we would live if we knew that in those moments, Jesus is actually near. I wonder. Because I know this about my own doubts. In those moments, Jesus feels anything but near. But he is. That's why his name is Emmanuel. God with us. And he said to them, listen to this, all authority has been given to me 
in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you. Always. To the end of the age. I believe that Matthew wrote about the doubt these disciples had the doubt that John had so he could prove to all those who would lean into learning what it means to submit all of life to Jesus as master and savior that Jesus is not threatened by our doubt nor does it change his perspective of us. Jesus loves us dearly even in the face of our doubts. Jesus wants to come near. He wants to remind you that he is in control. All authority has been given to me. He wants to commission you on a life on mission with him to change the world. In spite of the fact, I, I just doubted you, Jesus. That's okay. It's cool. It's cool. Here, here, go into all the world and teach. Do the thing you did? Yeah, go ahead. Baptize. And most of all, Jesus wants to assure you that he is with you to the end of the age.